Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Welcome back to The Interpreter Radio Show. Sorry for the, the lighthearted uh, jokes about the, the timing of the ads and how it, it cuts off. Uh, we are, uh, as we mentioned before, uh, uh, sponsored by the uh, Interpreter Foundation. Uh, pardon me as I... Uh, so this, we are... Uh, the mission of the Interpreter Foundation is to support the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, through faithful scholarship. We provide accurate information to the public about the church, as well as making available free to everyone on the internet scholarship on a wide variety of subjects at interpreterfoundation.org. We also defend the church against misunderstandings and criticisms but we are not owned, controlled by, or affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The material uh, we publish is the sole responsibility of the authors and the foundation. Uh, we are also a sponsor tonight by the Kimber Academy. Martin, did you want to talk about that? Sure. The Interpreter Hour that you're listening to is sponsored by Kimber Academy, which is a wonderful private school for students K-12, through which unlike public schools, keeps God in the classroom. Kimber Academy is a special place where teachers guide students through the use of faith and morality in the classroom. They have quality education through an engaging curriculum. At Kimber Academy, every parent's voice is heard, every student's voice is heard, and the teachers are extraordinary. Kimber Academy is located in Linden, Utah, although there are many other locations throughout the United States if you're not living in Utah. To find out more about Kimber Academy and if this program is right for your student, call the director Jessica Bianco at area code 801-382-7158, 801-382-7158. You can schedule a tour. You can ask questions. You can find out more about the curriculum. You can also learn more at KimberSchool.com on the Internet. That's KimberSchool.com. And this hour of Interpreter Radio has four co-hosts, Hale Swift, Brent Schmidt, Spencer Krause, and me. I'm Martin Tanner. It's a pleasure for us to be here with you. Thank you for introducing us. I forgot to earlier. <laughs> so uh, hopefully you guys remember who we are. And uh, in, in the previous hour, we talked about the Come Follow Me lesson for First Nephi chapters 16 through 22. Now there's a lot to these chapters, uh, both um, historically uh, through the, the details that Nephi gives about his, his journey as well as uh, significant to the text and, and, and its message about Jesus Christ. And so we wanted to spend this extra hour and talk more about what recent scholarship is saying about uh, these chapters specifically. 
And and so with that, uh, Martin, would you like to start us off with sure, this I, discussion? Sure. I have one I really like. This is, this is just a really fun one for me. And, and I'll set this up a little bit about why I'm so interested in this. I, over the years, have, have been challenged to debates by church critics off, off and on forever and ever. And one that I had, God, how long has it been now? Six or eight years ago was... <laughs> Kind of an interesting uh, one. It was with a guy who was a former Latter-day Saint who lived in California, who has his own website and uh, calls him, himself during, during his show Mr. Deity, which is more than slightly ir- irreverent. And so I was <laughs> kind of expecting a, a really difficult guy, but, but I actually quite liked him. Um, and... It struck me that he had left the church for lack of information to respond to critics. And sadly, I I think this happens more often than than we would hope. And and for the four of us on this radio show who know how to find things, and and I suppose that, that... in the midst of that comment, I should toss out the idea that if you have questions or concerns about the church and you don't know where to get answers, go to fairlatterdaysaint.org, go to the Interpreter Foundation, uh, the, web, the website, send us an email, go to Book of Mormon Central, go to any one of a number of places and you can get thoughtful good scholarly responses to uh, thousands, tens of thousands of things that, that have been brought up. This, these projects originated with Jack Welch, who when he was a, a young associate at a fancy law firm in Southern California before he became a law school professor at BYU, uh, was in a carpool saying, you know, we got to do something to combat these church critics. We gotta do, and so he came up with with FARMS, the Foundation for Ancient Research in Mormon Studies, and one of their early projects was the Criticisms Project. And the idea was to come up with a response to every single criticism that had ever been leveled against the church, its history, its leaders, just anything about the church, and that that has morphed over time uh, in into frankly, mostly, the, the FairLatterDaySaint.org website. And so that's a really good place. So anyway, back back to my quick little story here, which I will abbreviate. I had this great conversation with Mr. Deity <laughs> on the radio, <laughs> and his biggest criticism, the one that he could not find an answer to, was the idea of steel, steel swords, a steel bow, how could that possibly happen? Because he, he, all you have to do is go to Wikipedia, and it, and it will tell you steel happened in the 1890s. I mean, you just, but if you dig deeper every single time uh, about a question that's brought up by critics about the church, you, you will find out that it will be faith-promoting. Why? Because the church actually is true, and the Book of Mormon really is from God. And so if you dig deep enough, you'll find a real answer. And 
this idea of steel is a fascinating one. The answer uh, comes from a steel sword that was not very well known that was discovered in the early in early excavations at, at a site called Verid Jericho, uh, which was nobody knows what the site was. Could it could have been a fort? Could have been a fortified farm location, but it was outside the city limits, so people are a little bit perplexed about exactly what it was. But the gist of it is that this was a site where some amazing artifacts were found, among which was a rare Israelite sword. And it was a little over a meter in length, so three feet. That's a big sword. That's, that's just not some small little dagger. And it was found to have been made of steel. Now, if you go to the Israeli Museum's website, um, it, today, it's, it's a little bit disconcerting because if you look up this object, it will say that it was made of iron. But there was actually an analysis that was done on this particular sword and it turns out that, um, and I should give a site on this because this is so hard to find. Um, the Israeli Museum Journal, volume 12, from the summer of 94, talks about a, quote, metallurgic analysis of a sample taken from the blade proves that it was made of mild steel and that the iron was deliberately hardened into steel, attesting to the technical knowledge of the blacksmith, close quote. That's pretty cool, because this sword and the site dates to about 650 before the Common Era. So this is at least 50 years before the time that Lehi left Jerusalem. And, and, and so... Here, here you have some strong evidence, and where does this evidence come about steel swords before Book of Mormon times? It comes from Jerusalem. It comes from Jericho. It's, you know, it's not, it's not some other place in Europe or, or some other place. In the, it's Jericho is the exact location. That, I mean, that's, that's just miles away from where Laban <clears throat> lost his head in that unfortunate incident up, up until with, with maybe the steel sword. About 50 years ago, Martin, I know that in classics, people thought that the the Greeks and you know these Indo-European peoples and the Greek Dark Age, they they didn't have any real knowledge of of even really iron and and I know that a lot of times scholars, as they've found more and more things, have been pushing iron back and back in in classics. And then I know that I think around 900, 900 uh, BC during the the Greek Dark Age, or kind of as Greece is moving out of the Dark Age, they they have actually uncovered some some iron swords they would consider steel today because they're they're very hardened. Uh, and so I think maybe some of that is just just from from classicists who didn't really do enough digging, maybe in the Near East, and and. and <laughs> I just remember when I was a kid, though, and hearing just people all the time and, and seeing pamphlets delivered to my home. And I lived pretty close to a 
to uh, another church and because uh, I live close to an Air Force base in Lake Utah. But that was one of the main claims is that the Book of Mormon couldn't be true because of steel. I know the other one was horses, I think, which, which also has been disproven. <laughs> yeah, we could talk recently. about horses on, on a, because that's also another one. This whole issue of steel, I have done a very deep dive into all this, and, and um, there are a lot of scientists who believe that iron is not all the iron on on the earth not all not all scientists believe this but but all the iron on the earth is believed by many a huge percentage of of scientists to believe uh who believe that it came from meteors meteor strikes because it it's always rich in meteor strikes and one of the major meteor strikes happened right off the Yucatan Peninsula. And so you have the very area where uh, the Book of Mormon is, is believed, at least by most Latter-day Saint scholars, to, to have taken place. You have an area that's very, very rich in iron ore and is available for, for smelting. Now, it's true that at this point in time we don't have... Um, examples of that yet but we also only have about three percent of all the known archaeological sites and i guess with the new lidar finds from a couple years ago maybe one tenth of one percent i don't know what it is but but there are a lot of different sites to open up and and we do know that um uh that there was smelting and ore that was available and we know that it was available in in the new world as well as in as in the old world, the earliest known steel swords were actually not molten. They were made from pieces of steel or iron that were uh, taken from meteorites that hit the ground. And, and they were so rare that only kings and others with great power or prestige were, were able to, to have them. And after they were made um, some sometime later with the smelting process people were able to to actually make them yeah returning to the middle east in particular for just a second when nephi slays laban or just before he slays laban when he draws forth his sword he notes the hilt thereof was of pure gold and the workmanship thereof was exceedingly fine and i saw that the blade thereof was of the most precious steel and i think his use of precious steel indicates that this is no ordinary commodity, right? Yes. This sword is extraordinary, even in that time period. Um, just like you were saying, it's the sort of thing a general or a king might have. And I think that's something that many readers miss, that Laban is no ordinary uncle. <laughs> he, he has those records, which indicates his importance on a uh, on a fairly substantial level, but that sword that sword also uh, indicates that he has a, a major military position. And that's corroborated by um, comments from ne- from Nephi and his brothers about Laban's fifty or even his tens of thousands. Um, so he was at least a commander of fifty and possibly a commander of much larger hosts. Uh, what was else was I going to add about that? Oh, the 
there is at least some argument that's been made that the bow Nephi was using may also have come from Laban. But I think that's maybe a little bit more speculative. I don't remember if they had that one specifically sourced or not. Uh, but it would, if, if it did, that would at least make sense because that's the kind of thing he would have had as a high-ranking government military type. Absolutely. The, the other comment about the bow and, and the bow breaks shows that although this was very rare and very fine steel, it wasn't up to snuff with current metallurgy. If, if you'd and be more well, likely to break a wooden bow today than you would a, a fine, fine metal or carbon fiber yeah. bow. And, and one... So what's, what's usually... Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say one note on that is a lot of the ancient bows that we find today that uh, we, we typically would describe as, as metal, you know, through, through the ancient writings are oftentimes composite bows. So they're made of both metal and wood. Now, uh, Bill Hamblin uh, once noted that composite bows have a specific structural problem that leaves them susceptible to changes in temperature and climate, which may cause the bow to warp and break. Thus, if Nephi's bow were of a composite type, his move from the more temperate and cl uh, climate of Palestine to the dry heat of the Arabian Peninsula could have contributed to the risk that his bow might warp and break. And so it's just another thing that we, we often, you know, when I was at least a, a kid, we joke about how strong Nephi must have been because you, you know, who could imagine, you know, a dude just being so buff that he could just snap metal in half. Well, and so some people may... may have this picture in mind and, and make fun of it, like, oh, how did this bow break? Yet Nephi just is able to have a, a bow of wood and be fine. Well, given... There's that joke, right, about uh, in the Book of Mormon videos, that his brother tells about, my brother with his much strength. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Nibley has extrapolated that uh, Nephi could bench press at least 400. I'm kidding. I Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Especially uh, Arnold so Freeberg, uh, as as well. <laughs> uh, I adjust a bit, but Syria Hills, did you have anything to add about the the bow? We we spoke at the same time earlier, so yeah, I was about to say approximately the same thing that the climate and as well as the rate of usage um, with the other bows is an issue. And you notice, in fact, that virtually all the bows start quitting at the same time which is probably not a coincidence. They're, they're changing climate areas, and if they're doing a lot of hunting, then the wooden bows would have been degraded by the changing climate just as, well, not in exactly the same mechanism, but the wooden portions of the bows would have been affected just as Nephi's was and would have uh, re consequently lost their springs on a similar schedule. Um, with the uh, when Nephi makes the bow, uh, one of the other details that's so somewhat of interest is that he also makes an arrow, and there was some research done on that, uh, indicating that when you make a new bow, you you do need to make a new arrow if the draw weight of the bow is significantly different from the original one, because uh, you need to have the 
uh, mass and stiffness of the arrow appropriately matched to the draw strength of the bow. Otherwise, um, it doesn't behave well. So the fact that he made an arrow is, uh, and, and not just the bow, given he probably would have still had arrows from his old bow, is an, is, does corroborate his, his story that, in fact, his bow broke. <laughs> um, yeah. Or I should say it corroborates the Book of Mormon because that's not the sort of thing you'd normally think about uh, in, you'd normally just think you need to make a bow. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're assuming uh, Joseph Smith did not have extensive archery training. Yeah, I, in the midst of trying to keep their family's finances afloat, I, I, I don't expect they would have uh, taken a lot of side trips to yeah. archery tournaments. We, we, have, <laughs> we have not seen any evidence of that. Yeah. yeah. Now, there we did bring this up earlier, and it's something that I would like to return to is horses in the Book of Mormon. Because in First Nephi chapter 18, verse 25, uh, Nephi says, It came to pass when we did land upon the land of promise, as we journeyed in the wilderness, there were beasts of force of every kind, both the cow and the ox, and the ass, and the horse, and the god, and the wild god, and, and so on. And so Nephi says, at about close to 600 B.C., you know, give or take 10 years, uh, they found horses and donkeys in the New World. And for the longest time, people have have screamed anachronism, anachronism. Surely the Book of Mormon must be an error because everyone knows that horses could not have possibly been in the Americas until the Spaniards arrived. It's common knowledge, after all. So Joseph Smith must have had it wrong. Now, there are a lot of ways that we could interpret the, the appearance of horses. Uh, one example that is, is predominant is, is that of loan shifting, and it's where we take something that looks unfamiliar and we give it a familiar word. And critics will, will laugh at this, but it's something that everyone does. You know, the, the hippopotamus is literally named the river horse because the Greeks saw this and saw it had the head kind of in the shape of a very fat horse, and it lived in the river. <laughs> so they say, well, that must be the, the hippo, the horse of the, the river, you know, the potamus. The, uh, of the river. Uh, yeah, and we even have a Marco Polo. In his adventures, he was aware of the, the Celtic myths about a unicorn, and so when he comes across a rhinoceros, he gives the funniest description, and he says, you know, this has... This is a beast. I don't don't know what to he uh, I don't know what to call it. He says, has one horn in the in the middle of its forehead, very thick and large and black. I tell you, it does no harm to men and beasts with its horn, um, but only with its tongue and knee. And it ha- uh, and he goes on and gives this kind of comical description. Then he he names it a unicorn, but he he makes very clear. He says, uh, uh, it is not the kind that lets itself be caught in the lap by a virgin girl. So he's obviously ref- referring to these Celtic you know, myths and imagery of, of a horse with one horn. And yet he sees something and he doesn't know what to call it, so he calls it a unicorn because it has one horn. And even a lot of, of you know, Americans especially may know that 
when people talk about a trash panda, they're talking about a raccoon. So this is something, uh, you know, you've seen it in Guardians of the Galaxy. It's something that just happens. However, recent, uh, a recent archaeological dig done in 2021, it was published in 2021, I should clarify, uh, came up with two types of horse bones, uh, the Equus uh, Mexicanus and the Equus uh, Conversidens, both of which are now extinct North American horse species. So we know for a fact that, that these are not Spanish horse bones that have been found. Now, they were da uh, dated at, in various levels. The earliest date is about 1660 to 1508 B.C., and the latest date that these bones were found is 1025 to 1165 A.D., with other dates uh, uh, scattered throughout, such as 73 A.D., uh, 548 B.C., and so on. Now, what's hmm. especially interesting is there are two types of North American horse-like creatures, you know, North American horses. Nephi mentions that they found something pretty, what we, a, a rational person would look at and call a donkey and a horse. So there are two animals, two species of ancient North American uh, horses that have been found, and they date to all of the times stated in the Book of Mormon where horses are said to appear in the Jaredite era to when Nephi lands and in third nephi with the the gadianton siege and even even later and so the fact that there are horses mentioned in the book of mormon ends up actually being another strength for the text it's something that for the longest time everyone was saying this has to be an error there's no way joseph smith was right on this everyone knows horses went extinct well before nephi landed here in america well, it turns out that wasn't actually the case, and we are getting more insights to uh, this as scholarship and archaeology continues to uh, progress. I, I, this is one of my pet peeves as a criticism of, of the Book of Mormon, and, and I like to um, find and discuss things that are available to, to ordinary people that kind of show <laughs> that horses have been around one of the more interesting ones is a san diego newspaper san diego union tribune from july 17th of 2005 has an article that says uh and i'll paraphrase part of this but then when i come to the important part hey I'll, you'll get the exact quote so you know i'm not fudging it archaeologists are <laughs> working around the clock near carlsbad because they're trying to do this building project, and darn it, they ran across some archaeological digs. And in California, you don't do anything until you get all the experts on site. And so, so they work on this as an archaeological project instead of a construction site. And what are they looking at? Among other things, horse skeletons. Mm -hmm. Quote, this is from the paper. The finds are significant because Native American horses were thought to have been extinct more than 10,000 years ago. And these remains are older than the recorded conquests of the Spanish. And they were not shod. 
and they've been carbon-14 dated, and they've been buried in uh, a ritualistic way, which shows that the Native Americans were using them, and, and they show no signs of, of being the kind that were brought by the Spanish. And so this is, this, this is a newspaper. This is a newspaper in San Diego. Uh, another interesting one uh, is an article. It was written by a couple of PhDs uh, who have been studying horses. They're, they're part of um, the North American Wildlife Society. And the title of their article is Wild Horses is Native North American Wildlife. And they go on for pages and pages about all of the reasons why, from, from genetics to uh, archaeological finds. And also DNA. Uh, there's another one that I wanted to mention really, really quickly in, in synopsis form, which I thought was really interesting, which is, if I can find it here, there's always a slim chance that I will find what I'm looking for. Um, I put together actually a, a, a little chart here that has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirty, forty, uh, fifteen different archaeological sites in North America and Mesoamerica uh, that have horses. Every single case, carbon fourteen dated. None of these are Latter Day Saint people. For those who are thinking that we have biases, and they all show horses that are pre-Columbus and also after the last ice age when they were supposed to have, have, have disappeared. And so it, science, science should just accept the fact that horses were here. This is not an anomaly. This is not some bizarre contaminated idea from a few localized uh, sites. Horses without question were in North, Central, and South America well before Columbus and well, well after the last ice age when they were previously in error thought to have gone extinct. Yeah. It's not contamination. It may be, however, an infestation of horses. You've got a severe horse infestation. <laughs> anyway. that, that's right. Maybe in, they used radio to get rid of them. On the Internet, I just Googled this, but... If you have questions about the Book of Mormon, one really good site to visit is Book of Mormon Central in the Know Why section. Yeah. So there's a, a Know Why, it's Know Why 649. When Lehi's party arrived in the land, did they find horses there? And so there's a little video there, but it goes through some of the the new research in Mexico at Rancho uh, Carabuquez near San Luis Potosí, it says. And so it just goes through all the different carbon dating from all these international, uh, all these different sites. It even shows you the the different layers as, as you go through there. Um, and so I I, I just uh, I, I find that these no is really helpful when I teach Book of Mormon as a, a religion teacher. Sometimes students will have certain questions, and I invite them just to go on the Book of Mormon Central website. It's a good resource. 
Mm-hmm. I, I think... We... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, you first. I was I was going to start a new topic, so if, you, okay. if you're on the current topic, yeah, go I, ahead. I was just yeah. going to offer one, one final thought uh, on, on this. Uh, we, we talked about two what were called anachronisms to the Book of Mormon so far, you know, steel and horses. And there's a, a quote by Hugh Nibley that I've, I've referred to multiple times. Uh, I'll refer to it again. It said, science, philosophy, and common sense all have right to their day in court, but the last word does not lie with them. Every time men in their wisdom have come forth with the last word, other words have promptly followed. The last word is a testimony of the gospel that comes only by direct revelation. Our Father in heaven speaks it, and if it were in perfect agreement with the science of today, it would surely be out of line with the science of tomorrow. Let us not, therefore, seek to hold God to the learned opinions of the moment when he speaks the language of eternity. And so, as you know, there have been over 200, I believe, anachronisms uh, labeled through the Book of Mormon, and systematically, you know, since it's been published, most of them have already been settled as fitting for an ancient American context, and the rest of them are well on their way. And as science continues to, to catch up, we could say we can uh, just see how this quote is, is being uh, proven, if you will. Sorry, back to you, Hales. Uh, let's see, what was I going to say? Shoot. Um, oh, just to add I was on a little we bit. talk about uh, Nahum, but go ahead. Yeah. Just to add on just one more thing to Spencer, your quote by Hugh Nibley. I'm just looking at the bottom of this Know Why 649, and it says, Hugh Nibley once observed, every paradox and anomaly is really a broad hint that new knowledge is awaiting, for, uh, awaiting us if we're, we'll be willing to go after it. Those who have had the patience to approach the Book of Mormon's references to horses it says in the know why, uh, just as much as a broad hint are now enjoying new knowledge as that, that may be on the verge of rewriting the history of the Americas. So anyway, I, I think that uh, as we hopefully keep open minds, and, and I think we just need to remember the principle that our Heavenly Father knows everything and the Holy Ghost knows everything. And if the Holy Ghost tells us that the Book of Mormon is true, then that's the, that's the best that's the best kind of evidence we can get because the Holy Ghost knows everything. And, and as we are okay sometimes with not knowing everything, but just be willing to follow what we know, we do know from the Holy Ghost will be blessed. And we don't have to worry about what everybody thinks about every little issue that could pop up. Hmm. Do we want to take on Nahum now? Yeah, we have about 20 minutes. It's a, we can't, talk about everything because there's a lot to talk about with Nahum, but we let's let's try and get a, a good chunk of it in. All right. So to begin with the direction that they're going the direction that, that they're going throughout first Nephi sixteen um, and so forth are very much consistent with a sensible trajectory through the Middle East. They're uh, they're going by the Red Sea for a good deal of their travels, and they turn. And all of these places, uh, they eventually end up in Bountiful, and all of these places, if you kind of map out how long they're going, how far they're going, what direction, you get 
a very plausible picture of their trajectory. Um, and it, it points to, and you end up, like I said, in Bountiful, and there are only something like two plausible sites for that um, that happen to be uh, nicely in line with the description of how, how to get there. Uh, but one of the interesting events in First Nephi 16 is, of course, the death of Ishmael. It came to pass that Ishmael died and was buried in the place which was called Nahum. Uh, which was the use of which was called indicates that it was already called this. And um, there, in in Hebrew, words only really are written with consonants. So what you'd have is N H M. And if you if you look around in the area where where they're at at this point in the story, there is in fact a the area now called the Nihim tribe tribal region, um, and it, it appears that that is what they're referring to when they say it was called Nihim. However, there's more to it than that because um, in in connection with this passage, so he's just died and buried at this place. In the next verse it says, and it came to pass that the daughters of Ishmael did mourn exceedingly because of the loss of their father because of their affliction in the wilderness, and they didn't murmur, and so forth. Um, and it looks like the way they voweled Nahum um, also uh, re- is a pun on the, this mourning that's taking place. As a niffle verb, the Hebrew root nun, chet, mem, nahum, uh, means to be sorry, to console oneself. As a PL verb, it means to comfort, console. In its nominal form, the root means comfort or sorrow. So they are expressing their extreme sorrow at Ishmael's death. And uh, the way he uh, voweled or pointed that particular verb seems to both both pun on it and reference the actual name of the place where they're at in the same gesture. So kind of a neat artistic flourish on Nephi's part. Uh, did anyone else have something they wanted to say on that? Yeah. I know there's a lot that could be said there at the altars and so forth. Uh, there, there's one other thing that I, I think is, is worth mentioning. Uh, it's something that... Uh, has just been published in the past year, I believe. Uh, there's an article on the Interpreter Foundation about an Ishmael buried near Nahum. And it's written by Neil Rapley. And they're uh, essentially, not only are there altars of, in fact, a, a whole tribal region uh, called Nahum, uh, that there are a lot of burial sites uh, throughout right at this turning point where you would expect it to be. And in one of these burial sites, uh, there was a, a burial stela that was found. It dates to about uh, 600 BC. And it has a, a face on it along with the name uh, Ismail or Ishmael. 
and it's done in a style that uh, was expected for people who are either poor or traveling from afar. And it's, it's buried here in, in this tribal uh, area called Nahom. Uh, and it matches the time that Ishmael died, as well as, you know, the, the style that we would expect for a traveler. And so uh, we, we also know that at this time, the name Ishmael was not very popular in this region. Now, none of this, of course, proves that we, we found the Ishmael's burial stela. You know, that is simply impossible to do. But what it does show is there was a man named Ishmael buried in the right place at the right time that the Book of Mormon describes. That's a great find. I remember yeah. hearing a little bit about that from Neil, and he, he was pretty excited. That's that's a great find. Thanks for sharing that. There's, there's one other First Nephi 16 thing I wanted to share, which was um, related to the bow issue. So this is from uh, a, a Book of Mormon Central, Know Why. Why did Nephi include the story of the Brook Bow? Okay. Although this story may seem rather unremarkable, it may actually be loaded with symbolic importance. In the ancient Near East, kingly status, military power, and the right to rule were all symbolized by the bow. Thus, to break the bow was a common idiom which meant to bring an enemy or ruler into submission. In Nephi's circumstances, most of the adult males in the group, except for Nephi, murmured and complained against the Lord. It took the breaking of the bow as well as chastisement from Nephi and from the Lord himself before they finally humbled themselves. The story, like Nephi's slaying of Laban, also helps confirm the Lord's promise that Nephi would be a teacher and ruler over his brethren. According to Noel B. Reynolds, what we tend to read as the story of flight from Jerusalem is really a carefully designed account explaining to Nephi's successors why their religious faith in Christ and their political tradition, the kingship of Nephi, were both true and legitimate. Nephi's newly created bow symbolized that he was Lehi's rightful prophetic successor. It foreshadowed his future kingship and demonstrated that according to divine appointment, he was taking the lead of their journey in the wilderness. So, the bow in its ancient context carried some symbolic weight that we are prone to miss as modern types. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Brent, did you have anything you'd like to add on um, any topic? Uh, uh, maybe it was about uh, almost 20 years ago, but there's a, a great book put out by firms called Glimpses of Lehi's Jerusalem that goes into some of the different points that we've brought up today. But I, I remember reading this book and thinking that it's amazing that, that Joseph Smith knows the, the geography I think in in this in the time of Joseph Smith, they didn't have uh, very good maps of some of these different regions, and it goes through some of this evidence. But the the idea of of going south southeast uh, fits really well some of the journeys of the Seelys, and, and the Seelys went through and and I believe in the glimpses of Lehi's Jerusalem, if I remember right, they they actually have an altar that that does have Nahum actually written right on it. If, if you read this this volume, so it's a it's a good one. I haven't read it for a while though. I need to get back to reading it. 
Yeah, that is an excellent book. Uh, it's harder to find in print now because it's you know out of print for a while, but it is uh, on the Book of Mormon Central Archive. So you can read it for free online. I highly recommend it. Uh, there, there is one other uh, quick thing that I think uh, that I personally thought was interesting is it's in First Nephi uh, 17. Let me pull up the correct verse. Uh, it's in verse 41 where as part of Nephi's speech, he, he talks about how uh, Moses had made uh, how the Lord, he says, send fiery flying serpents among them. After they were bitten, the Israelites, he prepared a way that they might be healed, and the labor which they had to perform was to look. And because of the simpleness of the way, or the easiness of it, there were many who perished. Now this is referen uh, referencing uh, in the book of Numbers when these serpents bit the Israelites and Moses made a brass serpent, or a nechosh, uh, nechoshet in Hebrew. Uh, and Moses lifted this up on a staff, and everyone looked and was healed. It does not include this detail that Nephi gives about many uh, who perished because they refused to look because of the simpleness of the way. Uh, many uh, archaeologists uh, have found uh, the, uh, some very interesting things regarding this this brass serpent. So after you know the the temple was built in Jerusalem, this was placed in the temple so people could come to it uh, and it, see it during their their temple worship. Now there are a few, pr uh, and then eventually during Hezekiah's reforms. Uh, the book of Second Kings reports that he he removed the serpent from the temple uh, because people had fallen into idolatry. Uh, however, there, there there are these interesting prayers that have been found that uh, written down that um, contain these invocations uh, for healing. So people that people would take to the temple. And they involve a lot of wordplay on the words a life and serpent uh, in these prayers. And so one, are, uh, one scholar has noted that uh, this, this promise in Numbers 21 verse 8, that when he looketh upon the brazen serpent he shall live, this was believed to be an active and ongoing for generations of Israelite worshippers prior to the reign of Hezekiah. And then, of course, Hezekiah removes this. Uh, and so Neil Rapley, in another article that I, I mentioned in the first hour, points out that, uh, you know, this may be what Nephi had in mind when he says that there are many who refuse to look on it and live. Uh, you know, and that ancient metallurgists, such as Lehi and Nephi, especially given their ties to the northern kingdom of Israel, likely viewed the brazen serpent as a legitimate, Yahwistic symbol and an authentic and integral part of Israelite worship, whereas by the time of Josiah, the serpent had become a symbol of things opposed to God, whereas things still had a different picture in the north. And so Nephi could be including this detail uh, 
in part to show one way that Jerusalem was not the city that Laman and Lemuel and everyone was thinking it was, and that it it had fallen uh, from from this state, and you know through through perhaps innocent means of trying to keep the people focused on on God, they had you know done more harm than good, and that those who who refused to look because of the simpleness of the way, and there are many who perished. This could be a reference to those in Nephi's time living in the city of Jerusalem. Are there are there any other uh, insights from uh, that anyone would like to share? Um, Martin, do you have anything? Um, let let me mention one other thing here, real quickly, A and this is something that hit me a, a lot when I first learned about it. We've we've talked about the different sites um, for Nahum. Old World Bountiful was something that through the early 90s was considered an impossibility because, hey, if you went off <laughs> from where Nahum is, you know, they find the ball and Ishmael dies. And so instead of hitting south, they head mostly eastward off the Arabian Peninsula. And in the early 90s, it was a pile of sand. Nobody knew about the, the, the two sites that, that we have now that, that are competing sites for the possibility of Old World Bountiful. And so there were critics that were just hounding, uh, you know, farms and, and the church and, you know, Book of Mormon about the idea that, that this whole story about building a ship off out on the Arabian Peninsula was a little bit like going into the middle of the Sahara and and finding, you know, a, a motorboat or something. They just said it was it was impossible. And so I remember when Warren Aston, who who was able to get a visa because he was from Australia, not from the United States, so he <laughs> he gets a visa and he can go through Yemen and Oman and and. He had somehow became enamored, I think he was inspired, to, to go find this place. And he gets all these photographs, the very first photographs of, of this location. And I remember getting a call from Dan Peterson, how excited he was. And we were looking at these photos. And I borrowed all the negatives and got poster-sized blow-ups of all these things. We, of, all of, his, of all of his photographs, because it was so amazing. Here it was, right there on the Arabian Peninsula, where everybody expected nothing but sand dunes, and you had this place that voila, just fit with the Book of Mormon description of fruit and meat and honey and wood and you know metal. It it it, it was just remarkable, and I remember thinking, if you have a question about the Book of Mormon. If critics raise something, just wait, and it will all turn out all, all right. This this was an amazing <laughs> thing for, for, for me to, to sort of live through in the early days of farms. It was just really cool to see this turn from a negative into a huge positive right then and there. 
Yeah, it it really is something that it, it, you just don't expect to see in this part of the world because mm-hmm. as soon as we, we hear the words Arabian Peninsula, we're thinking like the Sahara, you know, it's just dry, dusty, you know, no yeah. one could have possibly expected the Book of Mormon to consistently get so many details so right. Uh, it it really does raise the question of how could the Book of Mormon have, have possibly come forth if Joseph Smith made this all up. He has to have been the luckiest guesser in the world. <laughs> like, I would go to Vegas with him. <laughs> ten out of ten, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Uh, but it it really becomes more of a miracle for Joseph to have made this up than the miracle that Joseph himself describes of it came forth by the gift and power of God from an ancient record yeah. that was delivered. I guess in. ultimately the challenge that the Book of Mormon poses to people is to pick which miracle seems to them more likely. A farm boy guessing everything right about the ancient world or God revealing things to him that could not be known otherwise. There's so much evidence, too, that the Book of Mormon is is an ancient record that I think anybody who's fair-minded should just take it to the Lord and read the Book of Mormon and, and and, that, and get a testimony from the, the Holy Ghost as well, because there there is there is just so much evidence out there that makes the Book of Mormon very plausible, according to the, what Joseph Smith explains about it. Yeah, and you know it's uh, Austin, it's as a quote that Austin Farr once once said, you know, that rational argument does not create belief, but it provides an environment in which belief can flourish. And this is the same with the Book of Mormon. It, it is. And with that, we're about out of time. Hale Swift, Professor Brent Schmidt, Spencer Krauss, thank you for being here. I'm Martin Tanner. For those of you who are joining us tonight, we appreciate your time. And please join the Interpreter radio show each Sunday evening or via podcasts. Join us next time.